Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. This is the audio from an impressions vlog that I recently put out where I covered my initial impressions on Imhotep the Duel, Llama, Parks, and Wavelength. Now, as you can tell, I'll be covering these in alphabetical order, and if you'd like to jump to a specific game, then you can find the timestamps for each of them in the description of the podcast. Now, before we go into the games, I would like to mention that the reason this podcast is being made is because of the Patreon support of John Gets Games, the YouTube channel. Now, if you enjoy this podcast and use it instead of watching the vlogs, then I would really appreciate it if you decided to throw a little bit of support to the Patreon campaign, and you can learn all about it by going to patreon.com slash Games. Alright, let's now jump into the list, and the first game I'll be discussing today is Imhotep the Duel. Now, this is a two-player-only version of Imhotep, which is a game that came out a few years ago, and both of these games were designed by Phil Walker-Harding. Now, uh, the original Imhotep was all about trying to place workers out onto boats, and the key tension of that game was there were a variety of boats, and on your turn, you could either put a worker out onto a boat, or you could launch any of the boats that are currently in the middle of the board. So that means you might put a worker onto a boat and then an opponent launches that boat before you are ready for that boat to go. And I won't go to all the specifics of what happens in that uh, mode, but the game was all about a tension of do I put a worker down or I just cut my losses and launch a boat? Or maybe I just launch a boat that has opponent's pawns on it that will currently not give them much because obviously they're going for something better. Now in Imhotep the Duel, it has a similar tension, but it kind of does an inverse with the way this mechanic works because uh, in the middle of the table, there is is a grid, and it's a 3x3 three three grid, and now what you are doing is either placing a worker onto the grid, or you are launching a boat, and the boats themselves have the stuff that you want on them. So uh, in this grid, you are going to be putting workers down into empty spots, and when you launch a boat, then the workers in the row or column that that boat is pointing towards will then take the tokens off of the boat that was just launched, and the token that you take will depend on where your worker is out on the board. Now, uh, much like the original Imhotep, what you're trying to do is use these tokens to work on several different minigames. Uh, in the original game, the boats were actually docked up against the minigames themselves, and in this case, the boats just give you tokens, which then go down onto the minigames. Now, you have different options, like putting uh, tokens down onto an obelisk, which you're trying to make as tall as possible. There is also an area where you're putting number tokens down, and you get more points for more uh, clustered number tokens. They go from, I think, 1 to 12, so that means if you have, like, the uh, 9 10 and 11, then that'll give you more points than just having the 6 and the 5. Uh, so you're trying to make contiguous groups of those different scoring things. Now you're also trying to build a couple pyramids, and overall there's just a few different little things that you're trying to do, and all of them are going to give you points in a variety of different ways. Now I was able to play this game once, and it really did feel like it had a similar attention to the original game. Uh, on your turn, you're just trying to consider uh, does it make sense to put one of my workers out onto a spot to try and snag one of those great benefits, but in this game especially considering the fact that it's a 3x3 grid with the boats coming up to the rows and the columns. That means you might put a worker down hoping to snag a bonus from a boat that's in the row, but then your opponent launches the boat that's in the column that has that worker in it, which means that worker then activates, taking a resource that you weren't necessarily hoping for. Now, you're still taking something. You're always going to be getting something with each one of your workers. You're just trying to get the right things to help with the minigames that you're going towards, and that's a really nice tension in the game. Uh, as I said, I've only played this one once, and that's not too surprising considering I don't actually play two-player games all that often, and I got this one played at the end of a game night about three weeks or so ago. Now, uh, it played in 
probably about half an hour. So in the uh, sense of what we were looking for, this was definitely it because uh, we were at a board game cafe that was going to close in about 50 minutes. So we set the game up. I cruised through the rules. I was already familiar with the game, but I took a look at the rules again. And uh, then we just played through the whole game. And that overall experience um, took maybe 45 minutes. So we had just enough time to finish it before the uh, gaming cafe closed. Uh, now, I think as far as a filler is concerned, this one does a really good job. And much like the original Imhotep, the mini games that you are playing can be flipped over to have slightly more complicated or interactive uh, minigame versions, and in this play, uh, we just used the standard ones. Of course, at the end of the game, we flipped all of them over to see what the new variants were, and I'm definitely curious to try those out. The next time I play this game, I will probably play with the uh, B-side, effectively, of all of those tiles, and I am interested in playing this one again, even though the uh, situation where I play two-player quick games does not actually arise all that often, but um, fortunately, I have a personal copy, uh, a press copy was sent over to me, and there's also a copy at that board game cafe, so I have lots of opportunities to try this one. And um, yeah, I think when it comes to a two-player tense experience where you are really paying attention to what your opponents are doing, and you are really tense as you're hoping they don't do things to mess up your plans, uh, this game does a really good job of packing a good amount of punch in like a 30-minute or so game. So yeah, I'm hoping to play this one again at some point in the future. Okay, let's now move on to the second game I'll be discussing today, and that one is Llama. Now, this is a light card game from famed designer Reiner Knizia, and the reason I was intrigued to try this game is because it was nominated for the Spiel DR. Now, I don't always love Spiel DR nominee games, but I figure it's the most widely known award in board gaming, so that's enough for me to give it some attention, and I was able to uh, easily throw it onto an Amazon.de order for not much money, so I did. Uh, now, at this point, I've been able to play the game uh, many times, and let's talk a little bit about how it plays before I discuss my impressions. Uh, now, effectively, this is Reiner Knizia's take on Uno. Uh, in this game, there is a discard pile and a standard deck of cards that has uh, cards in it that range from one to six, and then there are llama cards. Now, uh, the way the game works is on your turn, you are uh, either going to play a card, or you're going to draw a card, or you're going to pass for the round. Now, when you play a card onto the discard pile, it has to be either the same number as the previously played card, or it has to be one number above. So if there's a four there, then I can play a four for my hand or a five. Now, the uh, asterisk to that is if there is a six on top of the deck, then you can play a six or a llama. And the llama effectively wraps around, because once there's a llama there, then you can play another llama card down, or you can play a one. So uh, the llama is a seven or a zero as you kind of cycle through all of these numbers. Now, if it's your turn and you don't have a card that actually matches up with that, then you have two other options. You can draw a card or you can quit. Now, drawing a card is simple. You just take a random card from the top of the deck and then it's the next player's turn. But quitting is really where the game is <laughs> because uh, when you quit, you put all of your cards face down on the table and you will be done for the round. So players will keep uh, taking turns, just skipping over you until every single person quits or until one person gets rid of all of their cards. And at that point, the round will be over. Now, once that happens, players will reveal all of the cards that they had either in their hand still when the round ended or uh, on the table because they quit. And players will then take points equal to the value of all of their cards. But if you have duplicates of cards, then you don't take more points. So that means if you have one five, then you take five points. If you have three fives, you still only take five points. So having duplicates in your hand is certainly not a problem. Now, uh, the biggie here is if you have any llamas at the end of the round, then you take 10 points. And this is a game where you do not want points. Uh, 
Uh, now you're going to, uh, once you finish the round, uh, shuffle the deck up and then deal cards back out to everybody and you'll keep playing rounds until one person hits, I believe it was 40 or 50 points. I can't remember the specifics, but it's around there. And at that point, you check to see who has the least number of points and that person is going to win. Now, uh, a catch to this game uh, has to do with the uh, name itself. It's actually an acronym. And it's my understanding that the acronym in German reads out something like, uh, get rid of your negative points. Now, the reason for that is because if you get rid of all of your cards and end the round, then as a bonus for getting rid of all of your cards, you can take any of your negative point tokens and put them back into the supply. Now that seems nice, but the uh, interesting thing here is that the tokens come in tens and ones, and you can return any one token. So that means if you have a 10 point token, you can return it losing 10 points, which is obviously great. Or if you don't have a 10 point token, you just return a one, which doesn't feel as good, but it probably means you are doing better in the game than you were. So this is kind of an interesting catch up mechanic to a certain extent. And uh, that's essentially the rules to the game. So it's really all about, um, do I draw a card or do I quit out when you don't have a card to play? Because obviously if you draw a card and then somebody goes out, then that card you just drew is potentially going to be worth negative points to you, which you certainly don't like. So at this point, I played the game, I think, five times. And the first time it was played was a full six-player game. Six is the max player count. And that was at my weekly game night. Um, now, we played this one once with people around the table, and it probably took about 20 minutes overall. And the feeling that I got from these six players is that there were about two people who did not like the game at all and honestly were saying things like, is this even a game? Am I making any decisions whatsoever? Or is it just playing out and just luck of the draw? Uh, there were a couple people out of the six who were having a decent time, and then uh, two other people out of the six who were like, that was fun! Like, they acknowledged that there was not a lot of strategic depth to the game, but uh, they had fun with it overall. So it was kind of a mixed bag overall. Uh, I was kind of in the middle group. I was like, uh, fun was had, but I did kind of feel like I wasn't making that many decisions while I was playing. So my first impression of the game was pretty lukewarm. Now, after that, uh, the holidays hit, and uh, my wife and I went and visited family, and uh, at one stage of that, we got to uh, hang out with a couple of nieces and uh, other family, and we busted this game out to play it over there. Now, for the first of these games, I think we were playing six players again. And to give you a little bit of context, the nieces are about uh, seven years old and 11 years old. And I taught the game, and we played through one full game, and people loved it overall. In fact, once we finished playing, uh, people around the table said, let's play it again immediately. So we played it again immediately. Um, then we had to go on and do something else. And then the next day, everybody was over again, and there was a request, like, can we play Llama? We'd actually uh, watched a movie already, and, you know, we're eating Christmas cookies and whatnot, and we're like, what do you guys want to do? And they said, we want to play Llama again. So we busted the game out, and we played a couple five-player games, and the reception that I got was just so different from when I played it with my uh, standard weekly board gaming friends. Um, they just wanted to keep playing it over and over again, and honestly, I had a wonderful time playing it with the family. So it seemed like the experience was much more enjoyable when um, people were really uh, analyzing it a little bit less and really just going with the flow and enjoying it, uh, laughing with the highs and the lows. There were definitely some uh, really great moments overall for everyone around the table. I can't remember who won, but it was a decent spread. And uh, I do remember in that first game, uh, Jessica was doing pretty badly after the first couple rounds. In fact, the first round around the table, uh, I was not super clear about how points were taken with duplicates, and uh, Jessica ended up taking way more points than she should have. Uh, but then what happened is we played through more rounds, and she was able to get rid of her cards. And when the dust settled, she tied for victory 
country with one of the nieces. So it was kind of interesting to see a big comeback considering Jessica had like uh, over half the points to hit the end game threshold after like two rounds. So yeah, uh, at the end of the day, or I guess at the end of that trip, uh, we were um, chatting with everybody and I decided to leave my copy with family. Uh, they were enjoying it so much and I figured they can keep playing it without us. And you know, next time we're around, we will definitely mention it and we might get to play it again in that really fun atmosphere. And I ultimately decided not to buy a new copy of the game. So uh, I have acquired it, I've played it a bunch, and I've gifted it, and I have more opportunities to play it. And the reason I didn't buy a new copy is because, again, it just did not go over amazingly with my standard board gaming group. We uh, tend to prefer things with a little bit more depth overall. Now, there is some game in here where um, you are thinking, you know, you're pushing your luck about when do you quit or when do you not. I remember in one of the hands, uh, Jessica actually didn't play a single card. She looked at her starting hand and just folded, and uh, she ended up doing reasonably well in that round and that game. So that was a decision that she had to make. Like, do you draw cards or do you not? And in that moment, it seemed like it made sense to fold. So there are decisions here, but they're not too deep. And uh, yeah, this is a game that I'm looking forward to playing more with family, but not necessarily with uh, other groups that I usually play games in. All right, let's now move on to the third game I'll be discussing today, and that one is Parks. Now, this is a game that I knew essentially nothing about going into. Uh, in fact, it was a friend of mine, Trevor, who brought the game and taught it. Now, uh, we were having a big, long game day, and we were waiting for somebody else to show up. They were going to arrive in about an hour, so it seemed like this game would fit right in that nicely. So we uh, set it up, and Trevor taught it. Now, the way this game works is it's effectively a worker placement style game with a uh, track that you cannot go backwards on. Uh, so you have a little trail that are these tiles that you shuffle up and you put them out in a line and then all the workers start on the left side and on your turn you just move one worker as far down the line as you want and then activate the location that you land on. Now uh, play then moves clockwise around the table so in a two-player game it was just back and forth and when you move a worker you cannot land on a spot where another worker is unless you have a campfire lit. Now at the start of every round you have it lit so effectively you can do one copy action land where somebody else is, and once you go to the very end of the track, you can rekindle your campfire to do another one. So effectively, each round of the game, you might do uh, one or two actions where you jump onto a spot where somebody else is. Now, uh, once everybody gets to the very end, the round will be over, and there are a couple little scoring things that you can do, uh, and some of the actions at the very end of the track involve doing things like buying uh, technology cards, which give you new abilities, which you can use resources for, and uh, other options are uh, actually claiming these National Park cards that are at the top of the board. Now, these are the main ways that you get points in the game, and it's effectively uh, resource acquisition. Um, you know, the card itself will tell you what resources you need, so you have to spend those resources to take the card. And as you're moving your workers across, you are normally just picking up resources to try and target those specific cards. Uh, now, uh, once you finish the first round of the game, you shuffle up the trail, and then you put a new kind of advanced tile into it, and then you lay it out, and you do this again. And you do that four times throughout the game. So that means in each subsequent round, there is one additional spot. So the rounds get a little bit longer as far as how long the trail is. But again, you can move your token as far over as you want. Uh, now, uh, the way the game kind of played out for us is one of these advanced tokens lets you 
buy more of those uh, park cards or more technology. And unfortunately, that one came out in the very last round, the fourth round. So in this game, we had quite a bit of resources and we were uh, trying to jockey back and forth and take the various uh, park cards that we could. Now, um, the way the game played out, uh, I lost, not by a huge amount, but like, a moderate amount. And the strategy that I was really going for involved uh, gunning after some bonus points from a card that we have. Everybody has a hidden card with a little bit of a goal. So my goal involved uh, trying to take Take national park cards that used water, and I also needed to take a bunch of photos. Now, uh, photos are an action that you can do on one of the spots, and they let you discard resources to take a photograph token, which is going to be worth points. And overall, as you can see, all of these actions just kind of let you incrementally put points together. Now, I think I played the game pretty well, but uh, the reason I lost is because my opponent, Trevor, put together a really nice little engine with the technology. Uh, throughout the game, I only picked up one technology, and it helped me a little bit, but he got a technology that did things like um, when he wants to, when he needs to spend mountain tokens to take mountain region tiles, he can spend sun tokens, and sun tokens are a lot easier to get, and then he got another technology which gave him a bunch of sun tokens when he did specific things, so he really gunned hard on a strategy of trying to get those mountain region tiles, which in general were worth more points, and his hidden goal actually involved having those mountain tiles. So he put a nice synergy together that worked out really well for him, and he was able to squeeze out more points. Uh, so overall, uh, when the dust settled, I quite enjoyed this game. I think it is uh, relatively light overall, but it's very accessible, and the decisions that you have to make as far as how far you go down the track uh, were pretty interesting. Uh, now one thing I kind of glossed over is the fact that once all but one token is left on the track, then that last worker has to go all the way to the end. So you cannot wait things out and then take a bunch of actions. You have to be wary of when your opponent might go all the way out in case maybe you want to do some more actions that you think you need in order to put your plans together. Uh, now, um, he was saying that in the past he's played at three players and you use the same amount of tokens and things would be a lot more crowded and I think resources would be a bit more scarce. And honestly, it would probably play a little bit better with that extra tension in a three-player game. In a four-player game, you actually add another tile so the trail gets wider overall. So it was a fun two-player experience, but I think it's probably a little bit better with more players. It was not bad at all at two players, but um, in general, I prefer more players around a table than two anyway. Uh, so for what we were looking for, you know, an hour-long game to play before somebody else showed up, this was a great uh, a game for it. Uh, I like the decisions I was making. Also, I haven't mentioned this yet, but the artwork in this game is just stunning. Uh, now, Trevor was telling me that this game was actually commissioned by the national parks, that uh, each one of the national park cards that you take uh, was actually a piece of art that was commissioned already, and then the game was kind of made for these pieces of art, and I could totally see why they would do that, because the artwork is stunning, and obviously it's a great uh, way to kind of introduce people to a lot of national parks that you might not be familiar with. I certainly didn't recognize almost any of them in the game, and uh, also the component quality is really good. You have um, good wooden tokens for most of the resources, and then there are even these nice plastic trays that look kind of like wooden tree trunks to hold everything. So overall, it's a great package, and the box itself is not overly large as well, so I like seeing great production quality in a box that's not gigantic to hold all of the inserts and whatnot. And yeah, overall, I was very impressed by Parks. Okay, it's now time to discuss the fourth and final game I'll be talking about today, and that one is Wavelength. Now, this is a new 
party-ish lightweight style game that came out recently that's been getting quite a bit of buzz, and I have been able to play it a few times. Now let's start off by talking about how it plays. Now this is a team-based game, so you're going to split the room into uh, half and half, and you're going to win as a team or lose as a team. Now on a turn, you're going to have a single person on a single team be a clue giver. Now they're going to draw a card from the top of a stack with a whole bunch of cards in it, and that's going to give them a range. Now it might be something straightforward, like short to tall, or it might be something a little bit stranger, like dog names versus cat names. Now after that, that uh, clue giver is going to take this big plastic uh, mechanism, which kind of looks like an old-timey uh, ship captain's wheel, and it effectively shows a, uh, a dial range. Uh, and if you think of a clock, it effectively goes from like 9 o'clock all the way to 3 o'clock. Now they're going to randomize this by spinning it and then reveal what their goal is. Now let's say the goal landed at like kind of 1 o'clock, if you're thinking about it as a clock, and that means they are now going to have to come up with a clue that will get their team to guess that uh, that specific uh, thing, the clue that they give, is going to be at the one o'clock position on the range that they just drew. So if it is short to tall and it's at one o'clock, then obviously they're trying to come up with a clue that is slightly taller than it is short, like not dead on. You want something that people will think will be taller. So that person is going to give their clue and then kind of hide the uh, actual goal. And then their team is going to take this indicator, which again is on this plastic contraption, and they're going to move it from the nine o'clock to the three o'clock position trying to decide where exactly they think the end goal is. Now, once they've decided on that, before the uh, the answer is actually revealed, the other team also gets to play, and they're going to decide, um, did the guessing team uh, go too far or not? Is the uh, scoring spot uh, to the right or the left of that indicator? Now, once everybody has decided, you will reveal the shield, and it will show this uh, kind of spectrum of the goal. Uh, if you hit it dead on, then you get four points, and then next to that, there's a three-point and two-point area. And if the opposing team guessed correctly, Directly, that uh, the uh, guessing team kind of missed, then the opposing team might get a point. And if the guessing team gets that needle in one of the scoring spots, then they will get the associated points. Now, after that, you will move this over to the other team, and you're going to go back and forth until one team gets to 10 points, and that's how the game works. Now, uh, at this point, I have played it, I believe, three times. The first time I played, it was about eight people, I think, and technically the game, the rules in the game say it uh, supports up to, I think, six players, but it played fine at eight. Uh, we played it a couple times in that, uh, at that player count, we kind of switched the teams up in the middle, and then the uh, third time that I played it, it was a huge group. I think we had like 13 or 14 people, and we said, you know what, screw it, let's just do it, let's have everybody play, and it worked okay. Um, now, I overall really enjoyed this game, and it kind of scratched the codenames itch with a lot less of the codenames stress. Uh, now, part of that is because every single uh, round, you're going to have a different clue giver, so uh, the clue giving is not just on one person, and it seems like the, uh, the stress and tension over giving the clue is a little bit less in this game. Now, that being said, I have seen people uh, still get quite a bit of analysis paralysis here. Uh, now, when I've given clues, I've generally thought about it for, like, a minute max, like a couple of the times I was I was done in like 15 seconds, and I just kind of went with a gut feel, this is a party style game, let's just keep it going. But there was at least one moment in one of the games I played where somebody hummed and hawed for minutes and minutes, and it was kind of like, 
okay, come on, like this is dragging out, people are having side conversations, which is fine in a party-style game, but it does seem like maybe the game could have used a sand timer or something like that. Uh, now, overall, it seemed like pretty much everyone enjoyed this game, and obviously the best part of the game is the reveal, when um, you flip that over and the opposing team sees if they under or overshot, and then of course the guessing team sees if they were able to peg it right there, and um, it's kind of amazing how often people can actually guess it, considering the scoring range is very small on this overall meter. It, it's probably like 10% of the meter, so just giving getting within 10% or so of where the uh, clue giver was intending is impressive. And this game also lends itself towards some pretty amazing discussions. <laughs> I think at one point the uh, range was uh, uh, smooth to pointy, and the clue was uh, high tide. Uh, like the highest tide, king tide or whatever, like high tide, but the highest high tide there is. So then there was this discussion of like how pointy is a tide. And ultimately what the clue giver was, I guess, going for is the fact that since this is the highest of high tides, then as far as a tide is concerned, it is the pointiest because that's when it's the highest versus the other one. So uh, it's still pretty darn round considering it's, you know, the oceans and whatnot, but um, in that given range, they thought it would be a little bit pointier, and their team did not. Uh, so I was on the opposing team, and I argued really hard, like, no, that person was thinking it would be a pointy tide, so we guessed the other side, and we got it right, we got a point, and that was a really good moment for me overall. Uh, there was also a moment where we were discussing how soft uh, wool sweaters are, and in this game, you are definitely considering not only how soft you think wool sweaters are, but also how soft does the clue, uh, does the clue giver think wool sweaters are? So you're playing off of what that person also thinks. Uh, sometimes it might even go into their political ideologies based off of some of the clues, like if presidents are given, which happened in one of the games. And uh, yeah, uh, overall, I've been really impressed with this one. Uh, I don't have a copy, but two of my friends do, and I could certainly see myself playing this one more. Uh, this one, I think, could be a lot of fun when uh, playing with uh, non-gaming groups, uh, like some uh, family that we like to play games with sometimes. So it would not surprise me if this is a game that I pick up at some point, because it really does scratch that kind of code namesy itch, but it feels like it bogs down a lot less, and there's a lot more um, mirth and laughter. You know, Codenames is a is a really good game overall. Like, the clue giving can be really hard. There's lots of thinky discussions. But um, in Wavelength, there are some really high moments. There's some uh, funny arguments that happen. And then, of course, that wonderful reveal when you slide the plastic thing over and see if you got it, and people cheer and groan and all that. So, uh, yeah, I've been super impressed by Wavelength, and I'm looking for more opportunities to play it. All right, that's going to bring this impressions vlog to an end. Uh, obviously, this was a bit of a lighter one overall. Uh, none of the four games that I played or talked about here were heavy. Um, I will mention that I have recently played Trismegistus and Throne of Allegoria, which are much heavier Euro-style games, but I'm deciding to cover my impressions of those in the next impressions vlog, which should come out in a couple of weeks or so, along with um, who knows what else. <laughs> I know I'm going to talk about those two. I'm not sure what other games I'll be covering up to that point, but yeah, overall, um, this this was a lot of fun playing all these games. Uh, the only one I didn't like that much was Llama, and even that one was really fun in certain contexts versus others, so there's been a lot of good new games being played recently. All right, I think that's going to bring this podcast to an end. Thanks for listening.